Welcome to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Steine. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. Andy Meyerson is a drummer and percussionist based in San Francisco. He's the artistic director, co-founder and percussionist of The Living Earth Show, one of the premier experimental chamber groups in the United States that, quote, pushes the boundaries of technical and artistic possibility while amplifying voices, perspectives and bodies that the classical music tradition has often excluded. Andy is also the drummer and co-founder of the queer new metal collective Commando, music director of the dance company Post Ballet, as well as the artistic director of the record label Earthy Records. In the past years, he has been an artist in residence at Stanford University, the University of California at Berkeley, the San Francisco Conservatory, and at the Universities of Michigan and Maryland. And his playing can be heard on two solo releases called My Side of the Story and Extra Time, and many ensemble recordings, some of which we link to in the information section and also discussed during the podcast. But some of the more recent ones are called Music for Hard Times with composer Danny Clay, Lyra with composer Samuel Adams, A Kind of Ache with composer and percussionist Sarah Hennis, and the release Commando by the band Commando, released on the label Kill Rockstars. Andy is endorsed by Marimba One, Spawn Drums and Innovative Percussion. In our talk, Andrew and I talked about his work with the Living Earth show and how they have developed this group over the past 10 years, how they have developed a repertoire of some 80 or 90 pieces, all of which, except one, are written for them, and how they have extended their performances to include stage and performative elements. We talked about issues related to performing new complexity aesthetics and how their thinking on commissioning new works has changed over the years. We talked about his affinity to music that triggers him intellectually as well as musically and emotionally and how he engages in sociological discourses through his musical practice. Andrew, 
thanks so much for um, joining the podcast and thanks for taking the time. Looking very much forward to speaking to you. Um, we've known each other kind of through email, I'd say, for about 10 years, mm -hmm. as some of our repertoire intersected um, mm -hmm. back then. But uh, I've been following your career, like your work with the uh, Living Earth show and other things. We also recently talked about the Lyra album with Samuel Adams, which is so great, which I edited yesterday, by the way. Yay. Such a great work. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I'd like to start with just asking you uh, a little bit about your musical background, uh, inspirations, influences, and uh, how that kind of led to your current practice. And then later on, we can go into more recent stuff. Totally. Um, yeah, I was just saying before we hit record that like you're the person I want to talk to about this more than anyone in the world. Because like, I... So I guess the Living Earth show specifically, we started like it would have been in 2010 as like just out of grad school. We had um, like I had been to the two kind of summer, two formative summer festivals, like the first Banff thing that Steve Schick did and um, one of the and then Bang on a Can, which is the first time I really interacted with new music people. And we were like, came back from that. And myself and Travis Andrews, the guitarist, we just graduated and wanted to do something with new music and wanted to start our own ensemble. And the first thing that we did as guitarists and percussionists were, well, first of all, realized that there wasn't much repertoire for our instrumentation, for like electric guitar and percussion, mm. and wanted to do something that was like, well, actually, let me go back even farther. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I started like in the middle. Um I think for me, music is, it was a part of my life that felt separate from other parts of my life until relatively recently. Like in college, I was a double major. I studied like American history and music and like music was like this thing that was fun and exciting that I listened to and like was the way I connected to the world separate from academic disciplines, separate from like the way I studied, you know, any, anything else in the humanities or like processed like um, anything sort of sociopolitically or culturally or historically or anything like that. They were just separate, separate things. And in college and in grad school, I was, um, my undergrad was not music school. I was at Stanford, which is like not, which is in the Bay Area and like has access to really amazing musicians, but is decidedly not a music school. And one of my first pieces of new music that I ever learned was my advisor, Mark Applebaum, has a marimba piece called Stra uh, Narcissus Strata Panacea. And I remember, like, have you ever played it? No, but, uh, you know, his titles you, are great. Yeah, oh, the titles are great. But, like, I don't know how familiar you are or, like, anyone listening to this is with Mark's music. I'm familiar but, with his music, but um, he's, he's for, uh, what I wanted to say tonal percussion, but I, I meant really mallet percussion. Uh, aren't yeah. that much played as his kind of choreographical pieces, right? Right, exactly. It was like an earlier piece of his. And how how would you describe Mark's music? Oh, weird and uh, weird, inventive and um, humoristic, maybe. It's weird, inventive, humoristic. Yes. The only th other thing I would add to that is complex, complicated, and specific. Yeah, yeah. Like, so this was the first time. Like, his his music. It's a marimba solo, but it has very complicated polyrhythms. Like. I think there's a lot of like, it starts with a pretty big, weird five against seven that like goes into other, like basically like ir irregular, irrational rhythms 
that are impossible to sort of count that you need to sort of like take graph paper and a calculator to like figure out where exactly they fall mm. on the on the rhythmic grid. Mm. Um, and I remember I was a junior in college, like with graph paper and a calculator, like looking at this music, like sitting in the coffee shop. And I was like, this is awesome. This is like a part of my brain that I thought I couldn't access with music. Like, yep. I think music to me had always been this sort of like, I hesitate to say like anti-intellectual pursuit. Yep. Um, but like a part of my brain that was much more like visceral and physical and like that I, I had felt it was sort of like the part of my brain that interacted with the world almost like academically or cerebrally mm. was distinct from the part of my brain that interacted with the world musically. And that piece was the first time I was like, these two parts of like myself and mm. like the identities that I carry can, can interact with each other. Like mm. when I started like, you know, doing algebra to figure out this music, it was like, Hey, that's fun yeah. that like that I can access this music that feels good to play and that has all of these other connections to the world that I experience, maybe something that felt more traditionally intellectual to the college version of myself. Right. Stanford being like a super tech heavy university, right? Like all these uh, tech tech billionaires come out of Stanford. A lot lot of tech billionaires come out of Stanford. (laughs) I I was not that, um, that is, that is not what I was or am. Um, but like it's, it's a place that engages with the humanities deeply. So like the composers there, um, Mark Applebaum and Brian Fernie were the ones sort of at the time mm. leading the charge of that um, sort of brought to music students a level of interdisciplinary thinking just because that's what their music is. Mm. Like anything that Mark does, like it, it, there's a pretty great Ted talk where Mark talks about this, about like, this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like all of the things that he does as an artist as like a composer and an improviser and a sculptor and a painter. And like, and there's like a different like little picture of him with every like identity that he is. And I think we that should, was, we should link to that podcast. I think it's called the weird oh, sure. scientist in music. Or the something. mad scientist in music. The yeah. mad scientist in music where he talks so, about the, the, the solo concerto for florist and orchestra, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, those were like really early in like my, me as music student, like it was, I would, th- I feel as though I was like lucky enough to be interacting with teachers who made music a discipline that could exist not just alongside other like academic and intellectual pursuits, but like those were essential to understanding the music itself. Mm. And then the more you actually engage with work like that, like with work that kind of engages with different parts of your brain simultaneously, the more you kind of think, well, like why is that part of my brain turned off when I play, I don't know, Bach or Mm. literally anything else. Mm. Um, And you sort of like maybe even question a little bit like how the discipline of classical music on purpose distance itself from these things as like from, you know, historical context Mm. or 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 any other sort of thing that like the elevation of like music as this kind of like pure high art, the byproducts of that made maybe weren't that great. So I guess in college, engaging with with Mark and complicated music that allowed you know, different parts of your brain to be stimulated simultaneously made me want to do it more in grad school. Like that Mm. made me like think of new music more than just Mm. up until that point. I was, I had really good, was lucky enough to have like really good teachers in college. Um, Janice Potter and Glenn Paulson, who were by virtue of just like, you know, where I was geographically, they were like teachers that were close by and just Mm. the best. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was sort of like lucked into percussion, like, you know, started as a drum set player because I wanted to be in Green Day. And then like, (laughs) um just my my middle school and my high school like randomly had great music programs Mm. um that sort of like far outpaced the schools themselves and Mm. 
if you're in that position, you can just like a teacher will sort of bump you from, oh, you're interested in drum set. Why don't you look at this classical mm. music? Why don't you look mm. at this, you know, percussion ensemble repertoire? Why don't you play the marimba? Whatever. Um, and kind of followed that path pretty pretty normally, I think, as mm-hmm. most like percussion students do mm-hmm. un- until I got to college and was interacting with music that was weird and outside of maybe the traditional canon of, of mm. percussion mm. rep. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is he- like the least linear narrative. I'm so sorry. This, this is, is this jumping is great. everywhere. Okay, great. <clears throat> but you chose, um, you chose a rather, I mean, your, your deal with Travis Andrews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, like you said, you have to establish all the repertoire. And uh, I think you mentioned in our previous talk that you, you have out of the whatever, 80, 100, 90, 100 pieces you have in your rep. Uh, one mm-hmm. was written before and not written for you. Right. Okay, which well, uh, t- says something about kind of working ethos and uh, how much you put into that. And I know you also play many, many of those pieces, perhaps all of them, uh, by heart. Yeah, which is an okay. insane amount of work. And so, please, um, oh, yeah, sure. how could you make life easier for yourself? Oh, <laughs> God. Well, okay. So, I guess the other thing. So, I like went to grad school after kind of like ex- discovering new music via Mark Applebaum, really, and like discovered their Bone Alphabet. Um, just sort of like chanced upon it. And I think like the only thing I knew about it, well, the two things I knew about it was like Brian was a, was an old professor where I used to go to school. And then like, it was like famously hard. Um, and there was something about that that I think like, I don't know if I've, so, okay. I have a lot of thoughts on like all of this. Like, I think a lot of, just, just in general to a quick Brian Fernieho thing. I mean, the idea is it's on the page, almost unplayably complex. Mm. right the mm. rhythms are designed to be like whatever what's that like threatening notation like twitter feed of just like you know screenshots of scores that just look horrifying <laughs> yeah um i think like i feel like brian Fernieho invented that genre of scores that look intimidating like taking notation to its mm. farthest possible you know logical yeah. conclusion certainly one of the the figures yeah probably of the, right. that generation like in the born in the 40s yeah, there were others, but yeah, taking sure. it to like a dead end, sort of. Yeah, I think I was invigorated by the fact that it looked and like people were like, oh, that looks hard. Mm. And I don't know if there's sort of like a misplaced machismo to that. I've I've talked to other people about like sort of the gendered nature of that mm. kind of like, mm. oh, that's hard. I'm gonna do it. Like right. I, can, I can play the Fernie Ho, <laughs> which is like a culture in percussion studios and like the the percussion community that like you know, merits double clicking on, like, that's mm. not great. Like that's destructive to a lot of people. I mean, and it's also like how I learned to play percussion and how to, I learned to memorize music. Right. Like mm. I, I spent a year learning bone alphabet, had no business playing it, but in the process, like, because it's so complicated and complex, you need to develop your own tools for tackling it and engaging with it. And like mm. you use those tools in everything you do. Exactly. So, and Yeah. And also that once you do that, once you get through that that sort of piece, like there's a before and after, you never have to struggle with those rhythms again, right? <laughs> That's well, my experience. You can sort of you get it. You don't have to calculate the thirteen over nine ever until again. you play until you play the next piece. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, but then which, sort of, yeah, well, you get the language. Which brings us to yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so in grad school, after playing Bone Alphabet, I like looked at. I, I was like, that's when I went to like Band from Bang on a Can and was the, mm. for the first time learned new music as a real musical discipline. Because mm. 
I was at the conservatory in San Francisco um, for grad school, which is fantastic and also has gotten very different since I was there. But I studied with Jack Van Geem, who's a fantastic percussionist and in every possible way. But it's really not a new music school. Like it's really it was a hardcore orchestral and marimba school. Okay. And so there wasn't much in the way of exposure to contemporary music or even like, like percussion ensemble was not a thing anyone took seriously. It was always an afterthought. There wasn't much. And like the nuance, like none of it when I was there was particularly like where most of the energy of the studio and the school was focused. And so band from bang on a can with Steve Schick and like with, you know, Dave Cosson and all those guys was, was the first time that I was exposed to new music as something you could study and like as something that people really did. And came back from that just very energized and was very excited and wanted to be like, you know, starting that sort of new music ensemble of the late aughts because that felt like a thing that was the way to scratch the most intellectual itches simultaneously. (laughs) And did it with Travis Andrews, who like was the best musician I knew of at the school. And also like electric guitar and percussion have a lot of similarities um, in, you know, so many in how their disciplines have been... um, utilized in the classical tradition or in the contemporary Mm. music tradition. Um, Mm. And they have this shared background of like most people in most guitar departments came to it from rock music and popular music and are able to speak a variety of musical languages simultaneously in the way that I think a lot of percussionists, myself included, came to the tradition from from different musical places and never really like, and you have those parallel trajectories of what you can do with your instrument and all, all that. When we started the duo, we commissioned pieces, but we also saw one piece that existed, which was Renvois Shards by Brian Ferniehoe, who had commissioned a, or who had, I, I forget the group that commissioned it. Do you remember? Um, <laughs> no, uh, I forgot. <laughs> um, we had seen that he had written this, the, the only piece that we knew of by like a composer we was excited about, we were excited about for electric guitar percussion was Renvois Shards, which for quarter tone electric guitar and quarter tone vibraphone, so it was like bone alphabet, which but it was like even harder, even weirder, even more sort of like macho to tackle. Like, yeah, we could memorize that. Like, whatever. Like, we have work twenty three and have no lives. So that was the first time I emailed you because right. you were the one who commissioned and performed it. And right. we had like a couple questions in the beginning. Like, first of all, like, what the hell is a quarter tone vibraphone? <laughs> How? Yeah. Like, what do we do? This is yeah. this was a stupid. This was a bad idea. Um, yeah. yeah. That was like we we commissioned a lot of things, but I want to talk about that piece specifically because it's the hardest thing I've ever done as an artist. Music, okay. just like technically, mm. it took us it took us at least a year to do. Mm. Um, we went like it's it's really hard to learn impossible rhythms as a soloist. Mm. It is five times as hard to learn them in chamber music because yep. if I miss a rhythm in bone alphabet, no one knows, no one cares. No. If I miss a rhythm in Renvois shards, which is a duo, you know, Travis is just like done. Like yeah. you, you, you sink the ship. Yeah. And so building a vocabulary for something impossible together, we spent a year in so many different ways learning how to approach this music that you're, that is designed to be unapproachable. Mm. It's designed to be impenetrable. It's designed to be like, it sounds cool, but like it's designed to be a challenge and almost like, you know, masochistic totally. in ways that are, God, I would love to hear what you think about that. Like, did you, did you have, can I ask you something? Did you yeah. have like supervisors to tell you how to do this or did you sort Fuck of just no. uh, find no. you, you find your own autodidact yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, God. methodology? We, yeah. No, I mean like, okay. 
So what I did when I learned Bone Alphabet, like I tried to read a lot about people who had done it. Like like yeah. Steve Schick's book, yeah. he talks about that a little bit. I think he like he mentioned graph paper in a sentence, and then I kind of stopped reading and then figured it out from there. Right. Um. Because you know it's not. It's also rhythms. It's not impossible to like. No. It's just difficult and time consuming. I I yeah. I think there are quite a few approaches uh, lurking around, and um, the graph paper one is. Certainly one, and uh, I also mm-hmm. heard uh, another colleague, Ross Carr. He did it with like he figured out that in, in Microsoft Word there is a sort of graphic spacing that you can mm-hmm. uh, put all the rhythms in. I never tried that, but uh, I I decided to skip all the math when I I learned uh, yeah Bone Alphabet, and I, I put it in Finale in a notation program so that I could yeah. listen back, and I sort right. of invented silly melodies for all the rhythms. <laughs> so instead of you know, being some sort of weird atonal noisy stuff. I, I mm. figured out these melodies that I could sort of sing and then have, oh, for sure. you know, have all the counter rhythms sort of uh, yeah. flaming along. Did, you know? did we talk about this the last time we, we chatted on, on your... Yeah, you showed me the, this impressive cool. graphic of uh, that Great. you actually renotated the entire piece and sort of... We renotated uh, the entire piece in like two ways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like... Yeah. Well, because it's... So, yeah, we did i think as specific as one could do for like a piece like this like we renotated it completely on graph paper put it on the same staff mm. um so we could see exactly where our individual rhythms lined up with each yeah. other where moments of unison existed and like used like uh sort of different size we use like a lot of various tracing tools to like change the size of the circles to do the dynamics and yes all that stuff like yeah and then we sort of like memorized it by assigning a variety of memory palace techniques. Did you, um, um, this, this which, might be interesting to, you know, students or whatever listening. Did yeah. you, did you, did you like, you learn a line or a bar or a phrase and then tomorrow you just repeat that and add another line? Did it go very systematically um, about? Cause you can't oh possibly, okay. you can't prepare like five pages and then you start practicing. Right. So, so how did you, well, yeah. Okay. So the first thing we did was renotated the entire piece. And we could sort of, because on the page, I, well, actually, it's pretty, for, for the, for the, all the people listening who are going to play Renvois shards, there's like <laughs> every several measures, there's like a, a tempo change. Yeah. Um, and so it's a pretty logical phrase groupings. There's 52 of them. And so we basically learned 52 individual pieces mm. and we gave each one of those like maybe five to 10 second things. Mm. Once it was very specifically notated, we knew what it was mm. like a person object action so like we assigned this sounds like our friend whoever doing this horrible thing in this place and we like made each of those 52 things people object action things we assigned it and then placed them geographically around the san francisco conservatory so the piece is us walking through so this is like a memory technique from from the theater say or you know like people yeah exactly to do that kind of thing yeah exactly yeah yeah um but you know to do that you have to like there is a level of rote practicing to be like to associate this music with or these sounds with this very sticky image in your head. Mm. Um, and as chamber music, like when you're doing that collaboratively, you have talked about every single note. Like, why is this note sound like this person doing this thing? Where does it fall? And like, also, it's easier for Travis a little bit to record things than me because it's his digital you know, electric guitar can go into things digitally. Yeah. So he made a full Robo Travis. That's exactly oh, yeah. to the metronome, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and we, and we placed every note very specifically so we could practice to that together. Nice. Um, but so yeah. like this, this took a year. We memorized it. It was fun. We played it all the time. Like, hey, was it worth it to you? Um, 
quite openly. Um, we didn't spend a year doing Renoir shards. Uh, I don't think it was worth it in terms of like, um, I'm being very honest now, right? Maybe Do too it. honest. <laughs> Let them have it. I, to me, Renoir shard wasn't that a rewarding experience as learning Bowen alphabet. It was some years later, like uh, I, I think I started, learned Bowen alphabet around 2006, seven, something, seven, eight, maybe. The point being, it was such a groundbreaking experience because, you know, like every bar is like uh, uh, this, um, you know, insurmountable. Is that a word? Uh, yeah, insurmountable. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was very, very applicable to this. And, and um, you know, you put so much into it. And at the end, you have this piece that lasts for, I don't know, 10, 11 minutes. And it's sort of mm -hmm. probably the world couldn't care less whether you play. <laughs> you know, it sounds like yeah. some sort of weird improvisation. But the the amount of personal victories along the way is very significant and very important for your own kind of, per I would say it's more important for your personal development than for your musical development, maybe. So in some ways, mm, I don't think playing the piece kind of changes the world, but it's probably huh. up there with those pieces like Sapfa or, you know, mm -hmm. those kind of high caliber pieces that you have yeah. to in invest so much time and just personal energy and effort and also psychology of surviving your own <laughs> struggles. <laughs> it, that, in that sense, it's worth it. Now with Renoir Shards, it was sort of more of a chamber music project. We we didn't discuss rhythm five minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, we just kind of agreed on where the beats are, and then we just played. Mm. You know, and like I said, I think I learned it by memory, without even trying to. I, we, I sort of practiced it so much on the on these yeah. lives. At some point, it was kind of just there. I didn't try specifically to memorize it, right? Like you guys did, and. We also didn't perform it by memory. We had scores and everything. But by How then I was this, already, yeah. I think my interest, personal interest uh, in and enthusiasm for this kind of new complexity music, I had also played other pieces by yeah. other composers, uh, was kind of declining. And the reason for that, I think, is that after you've done a handful of those pieces, the, I don't see where the challenges are leading you, like artistically. Right. Uh, ethically, even. <laughs> like, you know, what do you mean by ethically? I mean, um, I don't, I don't like the idea that we're sort of uh, imprisoned in our practice cells for months and months on mm. end just to play <laughs> some bars of music that somebody wrote. I mean, I, I get the point. You can write me, you know, whatever complex music you want, but for me, it has a price of you know time and effort. And so for I don't sure. want to go through that. Then I rather improvise something. You know, at the end, when I when I kind of learned the language. Mm -hmm. uh, I can do it in the chamber piece, but I didn't want to. I didn't feel the necessity to add the one su more such piece in my solo repertoire, for instance. Yeah. You know, oh, just give me one more, you know, Bone Alphabet mm -hmm. Two or you know some <laughs> stuff in Malcolm or something. Even bonier. Even bonier alphabets. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, to, it's a kind of a dead end, and I think also that's a little bit uh, baked into the uh, aesthetics that uh, my mm -hmm. project crashed, of course. That, uh, wait, wait, save it, save it, save it. It's it's supposed to kind of be the absolute high point of uh, notation where, where things mm -hmm. kind of are so saturated and so dense that it doesn't make yeah. sense to under, you know, the image of the Baroque mm -hmm. music where it gets so full of ornaments that um, yeah. <laughs> that it kind of breaks its own neck by the weight of mm -hmm. the, what's the word, the, the deer when it has the... Antlers. What's the word? Antlers. Antlers, the, the horns or whatever. Yep. When it gets so heavy and so ornamented that it's sort of it's not able to sustain yeah to keep the neck up i think that's sort of um an image that applies to new complexity that um mm -hmm. it isn't sustainable in a sort of and it, it's certainly not in a professional world of you know you, you have to learn music you have to perform it rather quickly maybe that's a problem of, yeah. of, the, of the scene itself but it's certainly not sustainable for you to put, spend like 12 months for every every piece you play 
And right. uh, you know, we can also talk about economics maybe, but that's that's a little more mundane. Yes. But that certainly also applies here, I think, to you know, well, if, we, you, if you were to spend a year for every Jimmy Music piece or every do you learned, then mm-hmm. you know you wouldn't have a career. Then you would work no. at McDonald's, right? And God, so, I, yeah, okay. th- that's what I mean by ethically. Um, maybe, yeah, yeah. Um, well, okay. So, is your Pro Tools back? Because I have a lot of follow up questions. Uh, I it's on and off, but yeah, please go. Okay, now. cool. Yeah, well, yeah. it's so interesting to hear you talk about that because, like, you to me are like sort of the the foremost interpreter of that music. Really? Like, yeah, or one of them. I mean, you like, for for me, like, as I was learning Renvois Shards, I mean, it was your piece and your recording and like hmm. all yeah. those things were like, like Asami Samasa is hmm. like very foremost interpreters of, of that repertoire. Right. We, we and, invested a lot in that. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's interesting because we came to it a little later, like after it was hmm. like, there was, we, 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 you know, we didn't commission any, anything well, okay, well, I'll maybe, but like that wasn't really our scene. We approached that scene as like something from the culture that was like, if we do this thing that's hard, that will show people that we are a good mm. real ensemble, right? Which is which it is, has that you know, has that part, yeah, definitely. This it does. kind of uh, classical virtuoso, although the classical a bit virtuosity, yes, a little awkward the virtuosity, but yes, for sure, for sure. It's like no, the, no, the nothing can be taken for granted, and there are, and that's also built into the aesthetics. This kind of there are no licks that are sort of, it's idiomatic, but it's not like uh, something you would typically impulsively or uh, intuitively come up with. And I think that's the whole point of the notation that he wants to kind of break down every little atom of instrumental virtuosity and sort of build it back up. It's not something exactly. you can sort of, you know, like a blue scale or something that you can sort of riff on. Mm-hmm. Right. It's interesting. Like it's, uh, God, there's so many ways I could go with this. Like, as the first piece that we learned of chamber music together, or one of them, because we, we we had commissioned a couple other things, but this was the one that like really, you know, we did a big fundraising thing to like get a quarter tone vibraphone because that wow. doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, like we like learned to be an ensemble and built a language from like the one thing I'll say about that is after you learn that piece, if you after you memorize that piece, even you can like memorize anything. Yes. Because. Yeah. It's hard because, in the old school way. Yeah. Well, it's hard in so many different ways for so many different reasons. Doing that felt extremely academic and intellectual. Yes. Like, so we learned so much about, like, how are we going to approach, like, the pieces that we do now, even, Mm. like, we use techniques that we built doing that. Yeah. But there is something extremely problematic about the relationship between, well, okay, the relationship between virtuosity and, you know, quote unquote, virtuosity and, Mm. like, artistic merit. Yes. Um. And access and inclusivity and all the sort of things like that music does a great job of keeping people out on purpose. Yes. So many people are kept out on purpose when, you know, by this music, right? Like just, just in like Renvois Shards is a fantastic example. It's an instrument that nobody has. Mm. um, And no one has real outside of like academic institutions, real time to learn economically. We did not recoup on that investment directly. Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's a sort of, it has this, uh, I remember talking to Steve when I, I went, I actually went to UCSD to sort of just jump off the hamster wheel of my everyday life, like in, in, in yeah. Oslo at the time, it's sort of just to stand in a practice cell and just learn bar by bar because it, it it's such like a, in a sense, uh, autistic 
side to it that you just have to walk in every day and just do the work. <laughs> and if you were to like do a million jobs and have a gig there and a gig there, you would sort of lose that that flow, well, that chain of thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so so actually, like this is something too for us. Like we spent like a year learning this, then a year learning Ken Ueno's piece that was harder. That was <laughs> silly. God, that was yeah, a weird weird couple of years. But like I think I think about this a lot. If Travis and I lived in New York we would not be doing this for sure. Right. Like San Francisco, like San Francisco is a lovely, amazing artistic community, but it's not like a gigging town for new music. Mm. Like there's not as many, it, it's not as vibrant of a live music scene as other yeah. cultural hubs. Right. And so we were able to like, you know, teach and, you know, have other side things while focusing on a piece a year. Mm-hmm. But we actually did a lot of other pieces while we did those. It wasn't like the right. only focus, but like we had time to really like bake our ensemble for the first three, four years. And then fundamentally, like, well, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Right. Um, which is like where things actually got to where they are. Like, I think that we, we had some pretty like fundamental reckonings after learning a lot of very traditionally difficult chamber music, a lot of traditionally quote-unquote virtuosic things right almost like virtual virtuosic for the sake of being virtuosic almost yeah and to um, make a statement as a young ensemble you sort of yeah you do those things yeah and yeah although the memory work we did it's kind of perverse it's extremely <laughs> difficult and and uh, let me ask you about that so when Please. did you decide to do all uh, from the beginning okay from the beginning that was we're, our first we're an ensemble and we don't read music yeah um i saw travis play like his graduate recital from memory no, nobody in the percussion studio had to memorize anything ever mm. and like it was so much better mm. it was so good it was like the best recital i'd seen ever yeah. and for me it's also like if i memorize a thing will i play it better yes mm. yeah um, for sure and-, and so like born i think of a lot of just insecurity that guides most of the things that i do in my life like <laughs> i think in the first couple of years of like being a quote-unquote professional musician like i wasn't uncomfortable like charging people money for me to play unless i was like could go on stage saying like you know what i have worked as hard as i possibly could on this Mm. like i could not have worked harder to make this happen so like if i you know miss note whatever but like i worked as hard as i could to make this as good as i could so like i've I've reached the limits of my personal capacity to do this yeah um which again like should musicians be like should that be the educational sort of like is, is that where people should be pushed or sort of culturally drawn to um what i don't know i think um, that's a very very good question and um i have a kind of follow-up question if, if you wouldn't please mind. um always i uh, i i talked to someone recently uh who had been to a lecture um uh, conducted by olympic uh athletes and they yeah. and, and their trainers their coaches mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. they said that uh ath- professional athletes who are sort of olympic level they yeah. have a window of about uh I think it was 15 years, 10 to 15 sure. years where they are like in that elite sports yeah. bubble where you can wake up every day and just think about yourself and do the right, uh, you know, uh, diets and nutrition things and uh, go train, you know, for mm-hmm. three hours a day, whatever, and just do all the right things, get enough yeah. sleep, which is about being in that sort of elite peak performance window. Sure. And I think, can I ask you now, like 10 years has passed, you've, you've done this sort of elite sports window now for, for right. you know, 10 years with your ensemble, which means learning all this difficult music, memorizing um, an insane amount of, 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 of sure. notes and movements and performance, performing and recording. You are 10 years older, you're maybe in your mid 30s, I don't know, something yes. like that. Yeah. Guilty. Right. Do you... S- still feel you have that 20 something energy which like there's no, <laughs> absolutely no compromise 
Right. Uh, in okay. your, and that's kind of maybe the, the thing that suits uh, Living Earth. So there's, there's absolutely no compromise. Sure. Okay. So basically, like, after we did a lot of very hard pieces, like probably three, four years into what we were doing, I think we had a pretty intense reckoning with what the point was. Um, because I think like so many people, like coming out of school, you're like playing music is fun. It resonates with me. I want to play music for other people. And like, this is great. I can do more of this and like, I can get paid for it, but also like, you know, I am, I am making chamber music now. And like, this is like, because I'm spending time and energy on this, this is worthwhile for other people. After doing a lot of that, we had like which, you know, is how that works, right? You, you're an ensemble. You commission more things and then mm. people will want to see it because that's the next, whatever. Mm. And that felt silly and maybe like morally opposed to where we were at as humans at mm. that point. Mm. And so like, you know, three or four years in, the, the, the fundamental question guiding what we did changed pretty radically. And rather than being like, how can we be like the thing people want to see like an ensemble that like, how can we sort of like justify the fact that we're on stage and like asking people to like come see us play music? Like that felt like a really selfish question and like mm-hmm. irrelevant question. And like what the question became was we have this toolbox, this artistic toolbox and like, how can that be used? To, well, generally to make the world suck less, but like, what can, how can this, like, how can we be of service to artists who are making things that we feel are essential in the world? Mm. Um, like, and that th- there's a lot of different ways that people can make things that we think are essential to the world. Like if we believe that art is, and, and music are necessary to a functioning society, right? If that's one guiding principle, if another is that the marketplace will not support the art that deserves to be supported. If, the, if those two things are true simultaneously, then it became less about like, this is fun. I want to be a professional musician. I'm going to be on stage, which mm. I don't care. Right. Um, like truly I could, that, that's fine. But like, if I can be like a tool in the service of artists who are making things that I think are essential in the world, mm. that's worth kind of spending all the time, energy and effort that I have um, mm. in the service of something that really does feel like it's bigger than me and Travis. I think having that be a guiding principle. And then once you decide to do that, it is essential that you do that uncompromisingly that like that it's not about like, Oh, this piece, this, this piece is learned for the next gig. I gotta, you know, do this for whatever. It's like, no, this is an artistic vision that you have that, that like that I, I support fully. And like, it's, it's a different kind of responsibility that I feel as an artist to, to someone that I believe is, you know, essential to the world realizing their vision like like that'll motivate me to do a ton of stupid things
continuing uh, the conversation about your the uh, the ideals uh, the ideology yeah. if you like oh uh, bring it uh, on sort oh, of, yeah. Um, yeah yeah the yeah, high, yeah high high artistic goals you define as an ensemble yeah uh, and looking a bit forward where do you see the next steps uh are going in Love terms it. of um you know where where are those new 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 artistic goals and how do they keep changing you recently released two albums on your own label and one of which is sort of an ambient and another one which is sort of a melancholic uh hour-long beautiful suite of some kind yeah. uh consisting of i don't know 20 pieces mm-hmm. and uh, so Maybe you can talk about those in terms of realizing totally. new artistic visions and then also looking a bit forward where, what, what do you dream of next in terms of next commissions Absolutely. or whatever artistic For visions. sure. Okay, so one of the things that we did this year as an organization was start a record label in-house called Earthy Records. And it seems like, you know, the more we get involved in like professional music, the more like we're forced to zoom out on the structures that put it into the world. And the infrastructure and the culture that allows music to go from like a composer's head to a listener's ears. Because in so many ways, those structures are charged and sometimes toxic and sometimes illogical in terms of like how to best foster the best work. You know, in classical music, recordings are so often an afterthought or like a performance capture because they don't make money. Which is silly in a field that's a nonprofit sector, but there's a sort of fetishization of an exclusive live experience that is toxic and exclusive, and all, all the sort of negative things that uh, that keeps people out on purpose. And so, for us, starting a record label was a way to work with composers to realize their most ambitious artistic vision, both live and in the way that 99 of the world will engage with it, which is in its recorded form. Mm. So we've been spending like everything we commission now, we commission as a full, pro- it's going to be a live production and it's also going to be a, an album and designed for those two things simultaneously from the get-go. Mm. That's another thing that's changed. Sorry, like there's, there's like a big sort of step between like the pre-break and now. Like we effectively stopped commissioning chamber music pieces in the way that like they were traditionally commissioned. Like the idea of commissioning like a 10 minute piece that'll be part of like a rep show is so like was so antithetical to like someone making their coolest thing the question we started asking composers was like what's the the most ambitious thing you've always wanted to do but couldn't like you know if you had you know your if you had full control over every element of the creative and sort of generative and presentational process what's the thing you would make in your dream world And those were never like 10 minute pieces that would go on a recital. They were like yeah. Raven Chacon writing a piece that we did in Sutro Baths, like where you're like amplifying the water or like Dennis Amon writing like four hours of music for like, you know, microtonal go-kart. There was like a 23 note to the octave washing machine too involved. That's the other thing. So, so all that, like once we started like played Renvois shards, we accidentally became a microtonal ensemble. We accidentally started working with alternate tunings, which was not like an academic focus for me at all. I didn't care. I didn't, I played drums. I'll hit whatever. But like we started working with composers outside of the Western tradition or working in opposition to it or working outside of like the traditional ways we think about tonality and harmony. Mm. Um, And so that was like a part of our lives and that's just another parameter we could deal with. Mm. And so now for us, Guess getting back to what a like having a record label now, um, 
we're able to really like imagine what a composer's most most ambitious thing could be mm-hmm. and have it exist every possible way that it could get into someone's ears and that's something that fe- that still feels a little bit unique um institutionally the idea that like the composer now has the reins and access to every, like the mechanisms by which the music is produced and presented and consumed beyond like, Hey, I'm going to give this score to this symphony. Let's see what happens, mm-hmm. which seems awful. It seems like, like the opposite of how music, like art is made. Yeah. Like it's, it's anti-collaborative. It's like exclusive. It's all, all the things. So yeah, we've, we've released two albums as our label. Now we'll release a third, um, our album with Sarah Henney's in the summer. Um, and then an album with Zachary Watkins in the winter. Maybe is that also a Sarah's piece, also like a, an evening length kind of <laughs> yeah. full concert? Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. It's called a kind of ache. We made this piece with Sarah. So I've, I've done a lot of work with Sarah Henney's. Mm. Um, we, I made a solo album of her music that she wrote for me oh, did you? a few okay. years ago. Nice. Yeah. Um, that's a weird album. Um, <laughs> okay. So I, I don't know how interested, interesting this is for people, but like, cool. I do want to talk about all these albums, but like one of the interesting red threads through this is like learning that weird new complexity. I've since worked with a lot of composers and artists who take elements of that vocabulary and use them for sort of subversive ends. Sarah and Amadeus Regu Sarah is another um, who like write, write music that is engaged with that toolbox, but also so many other elements of like humanity and queerness and like the, the capability of like a human body and all that. Mm. So Sarah wrote me this piece called kisses, which have you seen it in the score? Nope. Nope. It's awesome. It's like mm-hmm. basically you're doing like five in your, in one limb, seven in another limb, three in another limb and four in another limb. It's a drum set piece. Okay. Um, and then like weird sort of, you have to, so you're playing these rhythms and then they change slowly um, and then they sh- there's four movements and so all the polyrhythms shift and like you have to do like like in one thing like each rhythm like changes tempo very quickly or it's very very subtly over the course not very quickly the opposite or there's weird accents in another and the entire time basically throughout you have there's a big metal bucket and like 10 objects and while you're playing these things you have to throw items into the bucket um, and the bucket gets farther away every movement it's awesome nice. and basically in a lot of ways it is a commentary or like you, she i mean she is so good in so many ways for so many mm-hmm. different reasons and like speaks so many different languages and like there is it also sounds good and it sounds really cool and it's like a fascinating theatrical experience and it's like you know her thing of meditating on sound as it slowly changes and having these four different metronomes that get knocked off their axes whatever it's it's brilliant i love it but also directly engages with the idea that like the masochistic relationship between a performer and a composer Mm. and like the maybe gendered nature of that relationship or like, Mm. like the thing that's sort of absent from new complexity is the humanity of the performer. Um, Like that is not like, or unless there's like some higher level of like, Oh, now that you know that, like the complexity was inside you the whole time. Like, <laughs> yeah. unless that's there, I don't know. But like, this is to me, like, she is sort of like the whole point of this piece is to acknowledge human failure, and that like, the, like, if you play kisses like a barn burner badass, as she says, like it's wrong. Yeah. Like she designed it to be impossible, <clears throat> right. and so reckoning with that humanity is a really powerful thing to engage with artistically, and it's a really powerful use of rhythms that are 
impossible. The struggle is part of the music and part right. of like the, like watching a human accomplish an impossible task is like a very strange and illogical task mm. that you end up sort of like rooting for. Like it's a mm. weird thing to watch. Cause like it's, you're, you're hearing all these metronomes, you're watching this difficult thing. And then like you see the object go over the drum set, like and into the bucket and you're sort of like rooting for it by the end. And it's yeah. like, you don't know why you're rooting for it. And it's, which is something like engaging also with like, queerness as concept it's that it that in so many ways makes you know you see the world very differently and you see like you know humanity and like your things like dysphoria and things like um normativity and pieces like that kind of get you there like they tell the story of those those things better than words can like they they show rather than tell so many elements of what what it means to be a human Being a student today in this kind of uh, in the aesthetics that have developed and emerged in the scene uh, with a kind of more sociological emphasis than uh, a music for its own sake kind of emphasis, which was the one you happened to be surrounded by hmm. as a twenty-something-year-old, so, would it have would it have changed you as a musician? You think in terms of um, craft, you know, skill sets, uh, priorities. Hmm. The short answer is obviously, and the long answer is like I, that. That's such a complicated question. Um, because like this always also just you know really grinds my gears whenever like it's talked about like that that sort of like a sociological or like a cultural or like an awareness of the way music exists in the world like that that's a new thing i think is is incorrect like there was a cultural and sociological and like element of sexuality and identity that was so firmly foregrounded in all music it was just straight cis white male that element like there is a very gendered machismo to a lot of that new complexity right there's a lot of like and that that that, like the element of what virtuosity is what it means to be that what it means to be a percussionist in general the masculine elements of the actions of percussion those those cultural elements or whatever like that was always there that was there just as much they were just they were just like accepted as the default but it's it's sort of like saying, you know, a lot of times we like, you know, as the Living Earth Show, because like we we work with a lot of costume designers and like there's pictures of us doing, you know, silly things in silly ways. Um, it's like people like ask about like what made you like want to like, you know, wear costumes or whatever. And it's like you are cost. There is a costume designer with every concert anyone ever plays. Choosing the default is a choice. It is a political choice. It is a mm. cultural choice. It is a gendered choice. It is a racialized choice. Like accepting the default is not the same as this wasn't a choice before. I think the real question of like, were things like race, gender, sexuality discussed, foregrounded and intentionalized and, you know, put a magnifying glass on when I was in school would think, would I have been different? Absolutely. Mm. Fully in every possible way. Like me as a person, me as a performer, all those things, you know, the idea that I would have engaged with who I was as a human a lot differently. If I had sort of seen myself in are in like the art and the culture and the practice, mm. then I could have engaged with myself. Right. 
Um, there is like when you perform as sort of the traditionally classical automaton, there is an archetype that you are becoming. Mm. And that archetype is not pure music. That archetype is racialized and gendered mm. and sexualized and all those. Like if in for any parameter is not you and it's not most people because that's not that archetype is not like a, a true thing that exists often or that exists absent of a spectrum of like what humanity is like you're going to be invisibilizing yourself in some capacity. Mm. Mm. And so if that was part of a discussion when I was in school, I would have. I have no idea because like, I don't know what I'd be doing now or I, I don't know how I'd be different now because a lot of the artistic choices I've been made have been in opposition to that. Right, exactly. And, and so are you in touch with the department today and you know if that has changed or um, do you, yeah, you lecture on I these think, things? Or Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I think it's slowly changing. Mm. Um, you know, the San Francisco Conservatory is doing kind of great work around mm. being a like allowing music to exist in a lot of different ways mm. and like this, the spectrum of what's possible. Um, it's, it's interesting too, because a lot of the work and a lot of people I work with are like my age and older and also work. Do you know Amadeus Regusera's music at all? No. It's so good. It's so, it so, so good. Yep. Yeah. Um, a lot of what he does as a composer is like, so he is very, very, very traditionally educated. Like, you know, did the UCSD, the UCSD to Berkeley pipeline and is now like <laughs> teaching there. It's like that, that sort of like very academic, like institutionally academic thing. So much of his or all of his work engages with queerness and violence and sort of like intersexual, like ways of viewing the world and identity mm -hmm. and, you know, race, gender, sexuality and humanity in general are all sort of like baked into these things and his own relationship to all of them. The language that he has to express that is like this weird kind of French modernism. So like watching him like work this out and ex like explore these extremely human things with this extremely like this, this language that's designed to keep that out, mm. that tension in his music is the coolest thing. Mm. So he wrote, there's a, um, a percussion solo he did for me called I Miss You, I Love You that everyone in the world should play. It's like a lot of complicated polyrhythms, but you're like, the instrument is like yourself I know. that you like hit and like vocalize and like there's a bass drum too. Mm -hmm. And then like flogs that you sort of like hit yourself in the drum and it's it's wild and violent and like very like it, the, the limits of what a human is capable of. And you're sort of watching that struggle and watching the composer's struggle as he reckons with all of those things and that tradition together. I would love to see more people play this piece because like it really did test like the limits of it, it's the limits of me as intellectual performer mm. in the same way that Kisses did the Sarah Hennies mm. piece, mm -hmm. but also the limits of me as human. Um, like physically and just like what you're comfortable with on a stage and why. When I get in the bed with the Z woman, they call me the great artist. Uh, hold, hold a minute. What do they call you in America? The coxicare. <laughs>
Andrew, can you talk about your sort of other musical outlets? Uh, you yeah, have sure. all these other projects. And uh, yeah. yeah, I guess this is like the part of the podcast where we talk about the gay rap metal band. Um, so Commando is like, I guess like about five years ago, once we started sort of like changing the question of classical music, of like, or like of us in classical music, not the, the question of classical, but like the question of what our, what the point was for us. Mm. Um, and if the, the point was to like, use the musical vocabulary we've developed in the service of like activating artists and folks who like could use those tools to make the world suck less. It became kind of in, in opposition to the question of classical music that we had been taught of like, as a chamber ensemble, your job is to create the next chapters of classical music history and make them as good as you can and make them as open and as great and like as welcoming as you can, but it's still like the same textbook. And you're building this textbook, this lineage, whatever. For us, it was really important to invert that question of like, we have these tools and other tools. How can the tools of classical music be useful for this artist in their practice, whatever it is? And so Commando was a project that we, it, it started as a little bit of a thing like that was in parallel to the Living Earth show that I did, still did with Travis. Mm -hmm. But 
it was, I think, an act of experimental music in a pretty literal sense. There was in the late '90s, early '00s when I was like at my most sort of like formative, like discovering like music on the radio. Right there yeah. was um like a genre of like the most popular, most ubiquitous genre of like rock music was rap metal. Mm. Um, which are you familiar with like Woodstock '99 and like the sort of in that was like that yeah. weird, awful like <clears throat> it was like rap metal, but like just endlessly like misogynistic and homophobic and like gross and okay. noxious but yeah. ubiquitous like so popular like you know bands of that era because that was also the era when like all of the recording industry was consolidated like limp biscuit the band that sort of like did that like so like you know like 40 million albums like some insane number okay, of things okay. that yeah, will yeah. ever be popular again you see i missed that, like that. I missed that. yeah you, <laughs> you should you should check it out can you put like links yeah, to like limp biscuit's woodstock performance yeah. oh this yeah ch- it's it's insane to watch now yeah. um it's like oh but like, but like, you know, I was in middle school when that happened and like, it was the thing that like is, was just ubiquitous. And so like the quest, like we started this band being like, what would the world have been like if that specific cultural moment was used for good instead of evil? Like how, like as a, just as in, in popular culture, what would the world have been like? And so it was just kind of this act of revisionist history that, um, that very quickly became aligned with the mission of what we were doing as the living earth show as a nonprofit, right? Like it didn't feel different working with um, the vocalists in that band who were basically some of the most insanely heroic and amazing and magical, like queer artists of the past four decades. Folks who have done like, who have been more, have used music more in like to create more change positively in the world than anyone I know. Um, so like the, the singers on that, in that band are there's a lot of singers. Um, but like Lenny Breedlove and Honey Mahogany and Krylon Superstar, um, Drew Sands and Juba Kalamka. If you're like, like each one of them is like a superhero in their own right. And like sort of started like affected and manifested change artistically and culturally. And so like, you know, the, the, the research question of like, what would the world have been like if, if like, you know, if juba kalamka was fred durst like what what pause like how would i have been different as a 12 year old like i would have been fundamentally but really that also that band like working with lenny breedlove who's you know a an amazing punk yeller but he can't read music he doesn't like well not even like i don't even know if he can read music we've never talked about it he has zero interest in doing in this project yeah and that shouldn't be the default so like writing a song with lenny and like putting music there is like that should be like that. That is the same to us as working with Sam Adams in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like it's using percussion and using guitar in the service of realizing this very important artist's artistic vision. Mm. And so whether that's like on stage in a rock context or like as part of like a ballet with Sam, those shouldn't be viewed as like, well, there's very obvious musical differences um, in how we learn a piece of music. Um, like one fundamental difference is one of them is notated and one of them isn't, but like the reality of like intentionality and rehearsal and like structure and all all of that Mm, is, mm. it's the same. And so like we, we bring a lot of like what we learned doing Lyra to when we like learn and rehearse commando. Mm. Um, And it's really fascinating to like, I guess a little bit full circling it, like working with, you know, the, the singers in Commando are unquestionably virtuosic, brilliant musicians. Mm. And like, they, you know, 
having not experienced music school in the way that I did, like learn and rehearse and approach that process extremely differently. Mm. And like that, like the, like it's important or essential for me to like, you know, to, to not accept the conservatory model of what rehearsal is and what's that sort of thing is as a default. And that's been like a hard, a struggle for me in in that project specifically is like, you know, I think just like I have such a, like having, you know, academically learned music for so long, I have such a way of what it means to do it right. Mm. And letting go of that is, is, you know, difficult in the way that unlearning anything is difficult. Building a structure for, for what a rehearsal is and what like learning music in general is. Yeah. It's, it's, the anti Fernie Hoens every possible way. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's bringing that to a different context is like, it, it is, is there's, there's friction. That's fun. Exactly. And, and maybe also the way in which we can learn more about ourselves because just pursuing oh, that sure. academic line is sort of, yeah, just repeatable. Yeah. And it's also like, I spent so much of my career being invisible because I was kind of taught to also because like, you know, like a felt taught to, B was like embarrassed and ashamed. C was like also just I didn't think I was particularly interesting. And so like classical music felt like a good means of like working that out a little bit. Like yeah. You know, you're a performer so you're really like you're interpreting someone else's work. You have like who you are doesn't matter. You're like yeah. invisible. It's like as a performer you're a tool in that yeah. way. Yeah. And I think in conjunction with working with artists who were engaging with the world in a way that I thought was essential. Like they obviously were like the, that's not what this is. Like you're as a performer, you, you like your physical, like who you are is essential to this work. Um, and that's also true in classical, like in symphonic music too, even though we don't really think about like the identities of every one of the section violinists. Maybe no, we should. It's kind of hidden like, away, isn't it? On purpose. The, like they're, yeah. everyone's like dressed in a uniform design to yeah. like, Exactly. Create the specifics. And like, you can't ignore that. Like they are like, everyone is a human and they are on stage presenting themselves um, and bringing their, their humanity to whatever is happening. Mm. And so that is a thing that I've, that yeah, has, has been a, I don't know what, where, where that came from specifically in this line of questioning or this, this rant that I'm engaged in. But like, (laughs) that was a, a thing that like, that that really truly like over the past five years even has changed my relationship to chamber music. Like I can't yeah. ignore like that I'm on stage doing this thing. Right. And so what does that mean? What does that mean to reckon with publicly? I think we do a lot of different things and on purpose sound like a different band every time. Mm, yeah. In a way that like other ensembles, like percussion ensembles and other chamber music ensembles, I think like don't like when people write music for, you know, a lot, a lot of groups that I love. Yeah. It sounds like, I'm listening to a band. Yeah. Um, which I think for audiences and presenters is a lot easier than like, right. To uh, like, to. Yeah. Mm. Like, like for us, it's like, we, we have like stuff that will alienate everybody. Right. Like I guarantee you, like we can alienate you with our <laughs> repertoire, whoever you are, whatever yeah. you like, we will yeah. have something that alienates you. Um, <laughs> and that's great. And I love it, but also like not maybe the best business decision. Sales pitch. Yeah. Uh, but that seems yeah. to be a part of the sort of non-compromising ideology right that's uh right absolutely that marks your ensemble right or your group um yeah fully like and also one of like the most beautiful thing about the discipline of percussion it can sound like literally anything so yeah. you know yeah. you're like i feel like my job as a percussionist is to do that 
to stretch like, stretch the uh, imagination every time yeah or basically you know like th- it is a limitless discipline yeah. in terms of sonic potential and in terms of like in, in every most every parameter it can be literally yeah. anything and once you go and into so, performance and and you know mm-hmm. acting or right and so like work, yeah well again like performance art and acting and like staging and like you are doing that like it's, it's a little more it's an easier walk to get to like the idea that like oh yeah i'm staged and choreographed whenever i play music like that's a little easier yeah. of a of a jump from percussion to to that than say you know piano a pianist is unbelievably choreographed yeah yeah and totally. it's like yeah. that's there is a staging and a set design and so yeah. but you're exploring more um if not dramatical pieces so more staged works and more evening length works intentionally so, uh, so. yeah, yeah. So, we, so we've that's... only done evening length works more or less mm. since like 2016 exactly um, so you're but you're also sort of, like yeah but but we've explored staging but what that really means is like when we commission someone you it's just also asking like hey how should this look right because rarely will the answer be, I would like you to wear all black in a proscenium concert hall yeah. and just like whatever yeah. the default settings of the lights are, let's do those. Yeah, yeah. Like no composer will say that. No interesting composer will say that. And so like actually imagining comprehensively what the experience is of interpreting and like experiencing music, I feel like that's a pretty essential job of, a, of an interpreter yeah. of music or a performer or musician in general. Yeah. 